This morning, uh, just as a, a, a few things to say, as a heads up, one, much of what I say this morning, um, because sometimes there's, some t- there's sometimes you quote from one or two people so much that it would become nauseating and fairly annoying to listen to uh, it when, when you quote from somebody so much during a particular sermon. But I uh, had two guys in particular this morning that I really gleaned from that helped me a lot in understanding this and have helped me over the years. Sinclair Ferguson has a book called The Whole Christ that was critical in helping me shape this. And then Rankin Wilburn has a book called Union with Christ, and so I want to give those guys their due since much of what I say this morning comes from them. Also, this morning is less gospel-centric than normal. I would actually see and say that this morning is an application sermon based on what we talked about last week. And so hopefully I'll be able to glean that out a little bit more. But uh, for those of you that are used to a more gospel-centered approach, this week may sound like a little bit more of a call and a challenge than you may be used to from us. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 is where we're going to be. Read along in your own Bibles. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't have one, it'll be up on the screen, at least this one, uh, this morning. Hear God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Indeed, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither. And the flower fade, and may the word of our God stand forever. We've said some pretty astonishing and astounding things about your relationship to God in the last couple of weeks, in particular as it relates to the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. It is, there is nothing more astounding and bewildering than this truth that is given to us from the New Testament scriptures, that God himself in all of his glory and power lives inside of us. So why aren't we different? You can have union with Christ. You will never be alone again. Though you cannot necessarily feel him or touch him, he is always with you and in you. The God of the universe who sifts the galaxies through his fingers like sand, the one who sits on the throne of the universe and at the same time is present in you and knows about you and cares for you. Do you know that? How is that possible? Some of the purpose of this Holy Spirit, it's possible because it's the Holy Spirit of God who comes to reside in you. The disciples could see and touch Jesus, but as it says in John, as we looked earlier in the series, you have something better. You have Jesus by his Holy Spirit inside of you. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, having the Spirit means nothing less than having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and reigning Christ within us. 
God lives in you. But this brings up quite a dilemma for us as we look at our lives, doesn't it? Let me see if I can bring out the dilemma via a parable by Soren Kierkegaard, who is the father of existentialism. And he gave this little ditty, a little parable, and it went this way. In a certain town, all the residents are ducks. And every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their homes, and they waddle down Main Street, and they waddle into the church. They waddle into the sanctuary, and they squat in their pauper pews. The duck choir waddles in, and then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible, and he reads, fellow ducks, God has given us wings. With wings, we can fly. With wings, we can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine. No fences can hold you. God has given us wings, and so we can fly. And all the ducks quack, amen and amen. And then they all waddle home. Do you get it? Ducks, you've been given the gift of flight. So why aren't you flying? Christians, you've been given the very power of God and all of his glory to come and live inside of you. So why aren't you different? Why haven't you changed very much? We talked about this morning, we read the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So why am I not more loving? Why do I not have more joy? Why am I not more gentle? If God lives inside of me, why aren't we more different if God is there with us? When someone says, why would I want to be a Christian? They are just a bunch of hypocrites. There's something inside of us that has to say that that statement rings true. That if we're honest with ourselves, we feel that about us as well. Like those ducks, we want to fly. We want access to this kind of abundant life. And yet, we've heard of the power of Jesus coming to live inside of us. And we say yes and amen. And yet last week, after we hear the gospel that you were adopted as sons and daughters, that you are, there is no condemnation, that God has come and resided within you, that you have the very presence of the Spirit to help you, and yet last week you waddled home. We know something is amiss, but we are not sure what is missing. How do we access the, this power into our life? And why don't we have it more? Is it possible to access this? You see, some of you in your Christian life, this question has risen and has simply been there under the surface for so long that you've simply become cynical. Yeah, yeah, that's just, that's not going to be for me. Or for some, they've actually created a whole doctrine. It's called the Pentecostal doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that there are those who are saved, but when you really get the Holy Spirit, when he really comes and baptizes you, that's when you get this power. So they create a two-tiered sense of Christianity, one where you're saved, and then later when you get the power of the Holy Spirit. But as we've seen in the weeks past, that's not true. Every, if you're a Christian, you have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And so let's look at life at the Spirit this morning, the new life in the Spirit, and why does why this new life seem so hard? Three points for you this morning, as always. <laughs> if we have the Spirit, why don't we always have three points? First is this, because life in the Spirit is a desperate war. It's a desperate war. 
This passage this morning in Galatians chapter 5 sets up for us a conflict between two entities that live inside of us. Two powers that, rule, that seek to be the rule and reigning authority in your life. And it's between the flesh and the spirit. Don't, get, don't misunderstand this, Christians, that when the spirit comes to reside in you, that is not the moment when the battle is over. That is the beginning of the battle. You are in a war. And where does this battle come from? Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 to make this clear. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Paul says that it is quite possible, even as a Christian, even as a Christian, that you can have the spirit, but not be led by the spirit in your life, but instead be led by the flesh. And when the Bible says flesh, we need to understand what this means. It is not simply talking about your body and your bodily wants. A name for life in the flesh is what the Bible calls our sinful nature. And the hardest thing about this is to get is, is that this is, there's, this is not simply something wrong with your body. This is not simply something where you just say, oh, no, no, to this all the time. But this, what this is, is life in the flesh is not something that is episodic or seasonal. It's not momentary. But this mode is a mode of being, this life in the flesh. Flesh, life in the flesh is a mode of being. It's what you were born into. And while it once was the ruling and reigning power in your life, and the spirit has now come to be the new ruling and reigning power, your flesh is still existent there. And so a war has begun. There is inside of you, you understand that this flesh is a mode that has not gone away and will not go away until Christ returns and you're brought into full sanctification in heaven. It's a mode, and it's not pretty if you know anything about yourself. Let me use a sports analogy. A few years back, one of the best running backs in the NFL was a guy named Marshawn Lynch. He played for the Seattle Seahawks, and if you were a Seattle Seahawks fan or a football fantasy fan, uh, aficionado, you loved Marshawn Lynch because Marshawn Lynch would get into this special mode every couple games. And what do they call that special mode? Beast mode. The guy's legs were like tree trunks. And when he got into beast mode, grown men, world-class athletes would bounce off of him. People who could lift five of us would suddenly spring off of him when he would hit them. But there is one thing, and they called this beast mode. He couldn't sustain that for a whole game. In fact, he couldn't sustain it for a whole season, and he had a career that was shortened because going into beast mode actually took too much out of his body. But for you and me, guess what? We will never run out of beast mode. You see, you will wake up each and every morning in beast mode. That's why this life is so hard. It is not a periodic or seasonal or momentary mode. It is always with you. In fact, there is nothing extraordinary about this beast mode, this life of the flesh, this sinful nature. In fact, if you want to experience, all you have to do is wake up. It's always there with you. It's not awesome and it is not pretty. And if you choose, listen to me, if you do not choose to consciously and intentionally fight beast mode, the flesh mode of your life, guess what? You will not live in the spirit. You'll live into that mode. The tragedy is that most of us live in the flesh mode and we don't even realize it. It's like a fish in water. It's how you're living. And so life in the flesh it's not about our bodily existence, but it does suggest something about our human experience. 
that as long as we are in this body, we will always have to deal with life in the flesh. No wonder your lives are lacking power. No wonder you feel constantly exhausted and discouraged and chronically tired spiritually. What does life in the flesh look like? Well, we read it, right? We get 15 descriptions as to what it's like, and it is ugly. And we know that this is simply a few examples, as Paul says, and there's many more things that are described, describe life in the flesh. But a key reason why life in the flesh for us remains so elusive is because, or life in the spirit remains so elusive to us is because so many of us, perhaps most of us, are not aware of the stakes of an ordinary day, of the battle that you are waking up to when you get up and put your feet on the ground in the morning. We are not aware of the lethal urgency of needing to fight the flesh. Last week we, wrote, we read from Romans chapter 8, and one of the sections that we skipped there is a section actually on flesh in spirit in Romans 8 verses 5 through 13, where it says to set your mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. And then it gives this critical reason why you have to set your mind on the spirit in verses 8 verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That doesn't mean you don't necessarily be saved. What it means is, is there, instead of being fruit and life all through your life and the trajectory of your life and the fruit of your life, it will not produce life. It will produce so much death. It will produce rotting fruits. You will die. Be urgent about this. We will never get to life in the Spirit until we are desperate. Until we recognize that we are in a war and we are desperate for help. Until we see that we need God's power and God's help. Because when we forget we are in a war, thus we aren't desperate about this. Why do you think the Bible dwells on life in the flesh versus life in the spirit? Because it wants us to get this. It's not because the Bible is morbid or pessimistic. It's because we will never experience life in the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And that is indeed what we want, right? Until we see that we are in a battle what we are up against every day. Rankin Wilburn said he had one mentor who suggested this, that one of the best prayers that he could ask God is to give God, ask God for this gift, the gift of desperation. But we don't want that, do we? In fact, most of us actually live most of our Christian lives. In fact, most of us actually in view, the whole reason why we became Christians is because we were hoping Jesus would give us a life where we never had to experience being desperate anymore. And yet what we desperately need is to be desperate. Because in our desperation, that's when the Holy Spirit of God comes rushing in to be our help. Therefore, second point, life in the Spirit, new life in the Spirit is a war. Therefore, it must be fought. It must be fought. This has gotten really heavy way too quick, hasn't it? My kids and I, my kids got, were given, I'm not sure where it came from, but a, a DVD of old Bugs Bunny cartoons. I, and I love it. It makes me so happy. They're so violent <laughs> compared to today's comics. But I love this. Bugs Bunny, you know, there's this great line that Bugs Bunny has whenever he's, I forget if he's facing Elmer Fudd or Daffy Duck. And they, one of them would do something egregious to Bugs Bunny. And Bugs Bunny has this kind of jovial sense of the way he does life. But when they would do something awful to him and they would finally get the best of Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny would look at the camera and he would say, what? You know, of course, that this means war. 
What does war look like for the Christian? Life in the spirit must be fought. There's two components to it. There's a negative aspect and there's a positive aspect to it. The first aspect is the negative I want to look at. You must crucify the flesh. Crucify. Crucify. What a vivid metaphor. And we are going to be, I mean, we're going to make you be silly with metaphors this morning. He doesn't say that those who belong to Christ should contend and do battle. No, they should crucify, put things to death. Crucify means to put to death painfully and piteously, without remorse. And the daily conflict of your life is going to be, understand this, painful. But notice as well, you will not strike a fatal blow to your envy and the fruits of the flesh all at once, right? It says crucify the flesh. Actually, it actually gives us in the past tense. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have the Spirit, have crucified the flesh. But this is not crucified in the sense that it is a completed and accomplished act. It's a past tense. But you have to understand, what does it mean for something to be crucified? When Jesus was crucified, the, the nails went into his hands, but did he die immediately? No, it was the nature of that execution process. Crucifixion is you're crucified and then you keep being crucified. It's a crucified in the past, and it is not instantaneous. It is a slow death. And therefore, daily, you must get up and ensure that your envy and your slander and your dissension and your sexual lust are crucified on the cross, these desires. And what does it mean to crucify our desires and passions? What does it mean to crucify your desires and passions? Does that mean you simply just, anything that you want to do, you just say no to? Oh, I think that would make me feel good, so I'm just going to say no to that. Is that what that means? Perhaps it would surprise you as to what this actually means. And here we must get in a little bit of what they call exegesis, a little bit deeper dive into the text. First at the Greek, and then, two at the, then second at the structure of what is being communicated here. Two instances I want to give you about this word desire. The thing that we're supposed to be killing is these desires. First, desire is the Greek word epithumia. It means epi is above or beyond or super. It means enthumia is desire. In other words, this Greek word epithumia, it is an above desire. It's an over desire. It's a super desire. In other words, it is not necessarily that you want bad things. It is that you want good things too badly, and it leads to bad fruit in your life. And then I want you also to notice not just the exegesis of that word, but also the parallel parallel passages that are going on here, because it may confuse you. In verses 16 to 18, there's an interesting parallel that's going on. Let me, let me show it to you. In verses 16, it says this. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So walking by the Spirit is against gratifying the desires of the flesh. Then verse 18, it says this. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Interesting. Do you see the parallel? Life in the Spirit means you won't gratify this flesh. Life in the Spirit means you won't live under the law. Which means... Gratifying the spirit, gratifying the desires is equated to in parallel with living under the law. Therefore, we must ask the question, because this is confusing to us, what does it mean to live under the law? It means this, that you can be obedient to the law and not live under the law, but you can also not obey the law and still be under the law. When Paul says that you are under the law, that means that you obey God's law in order that God might bless you. In other words, that so that you won't be judged. You obey God's law so that you might be acceptable in his sight. It means, in other words, obeying the law out of fear and in order to win your salvation and acceptance and righteousness before God's. 
In other words, you have an over-desire in such a way that says, I want to do this and win my salvation for myself instead of looking at the Lord. Therefore, what it means to be under the law means that you have made moral performance a system or an identity or of self-salvation. And the problem with our hearts is not that we desire bad things, but that we desire good things like obeying the law more than we desire what God, only God, can provide. In other words, what I'm saying is this, is that the desires of the flesh are thinking that I'm going to save myself and salvation may look religious by keeping the law or it may look irreligious by living out all these terrible acts of the flesh, but I'm gonna seek to bring joy and pleasure and goodness and acceptance into my life by my own hands instead of looking to the only one who can provide that for me, which is God himself. The problem with our hearts is not that we desire bad things, that we desire good things, to give ourselves good things, what only God can provide. So you must put it to death. You must look at these things and you say, why in the world do I long for that so much? You must create an equation in your life. You must say, if I have to have X in order to be joyful, if I have to have X in order to be loving, if I have to have X in order to be, feel acceptable, then X is your God. It is your desire. X is the means of your salvation. And you have to point that out and you have to look at that in your life and you says, that has got to go. That's an over-desire. It may be a good thing, but it's an over-desire. It's something I desire more than I want God and his provision in my life. That's crucify the flesh. That's the negative. The positive is what? Walk in the spirit or keep in step with the spirit. Galatians 5, 26. You follow the Spirit. Both of these crucify the flesh and then keep in step with the Spirit. You know, they're actually both military words. Keep, keep in step is the word stoikomen. It's a military word that actually means march. The image that is being given here is as a soldier in a marching parade, keeping in step with their commanding officer and the timing that they're marching through. Super desires... Over-desires passionately drive you to do and move you towards in your life to do certain things. And so Paul says that the spirit within us must give us a new desire. And the spirit himself actually has a desire. And that in keeping in step with the spirit and walking by the spirit is actually to desire the things that the spirit desires. Paul is saying that we ought to love and be passionate about the things that the Spirit is passionate about. So let me ask you this. What is the Spirit of God passionate about? We saw this earlier in this series. In John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, it says this. When the Holy Spirit comes into the world, the Counselor comes, and he will glorify me. What's the Spirit's job? What is the greatest longing of the Spirit? to give glory to the second person of the Trinity, to give glory to Jesus, to point an enormous light upon Jesus and give glory and honor to him. To be in step with the Spirit is to desire what the Spirit desires. And what does the Spirit desire? To see Jesus in all his glory, to see Jesus in all of his beauty, and for you and I to see Jesus in all of his glory and beauty. Which means this, the dynamic of the Christian life, the dynamic of the fight is to turn away from those things that you want other than Jesus and to turn with the Spirit and look to Jesus, to turn away and turn towards. You know, that's actually the same word. We have a word for it. It's called repentance. 
Turn away from your over-desires and turn and move towards a new and a better desire, Jesus himself. Turn away from, from a life in which you seek to be, do accepted acceptance by your own power and your own ability. Instead, turn to Jesus as the one who has won your acceptance for you. Lusting after Jesus, and that is the word here. To over-desire Jesus, which you can't over-desire to desire Jesus is the only lust that is not inordinate. And when you lust and long and desire to see Jesus in all of his beauty, then guess what? It actually sets you free from all those other things. Because he is enough. Let me tell you something. This is the key to spiritual growth towards holiness. This is the key to change. The 50 cent theological word is, do you want to be sanctified? To use our illustration, do you want to stop waddling and do you want to fly? Do you want to see yourself filled by the Spirit for power? This is the key, seeing Jesus. Let me provide you a series of New Testament passages that reveal this dynamic of the Christian life. That when the more, you, the more that you see Jesus, the more you rest upon him, the more change comes into your life. The more you're sanctified and made holy. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Why will you be like Jesus? Because we shall see him as he is. When you see him in all of his beauty and glory, you're transformed. On the last day, we're going to suddenly, you and I, as C.S. Lewis calls it, we will be so blindingly beautiful, so glorious in our heavenly state that others will be tempted to worship us. That's how beautiful we will become. Why will the sinful nature finally be dealt with? Because the veil will be lifted. We will finally see Jesus as we ought. And when you see him in his beauty, you become glorious as well. Let me give you another text. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says this. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see the dynamic there? The more the veil that separates you and seeing the glory of Jesus is removed, the more you are become more glorious and more sanctified. When the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And with unveiled faces, when we see and behold the glory of God, we are being transformed to see his glorious face. And one passage you may be very familiar with, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2, says this. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. What is the dynamic that you're to do? To enjoy Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith, you look, you see, you taste and see the beauty of God. You want to experience change? You want to fly instead of waddle? You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Fix your eyes on Jesus. This is the battle and the fight of the Christian life. Crucify and keep in step with the Spirit. And you crucify by keeping in step with the Spirit. And keeping in step with the Spirit you means you look to Jesus. And it removes your life from those things that you once leaned into. So you're called. You're commanded to crucify the flesh 
and to keep in step with the spirits. Andrew, this sounds like I have to do something. This sounds like work. Fighting, I thought Jesus said, I thought he said to telestai on the cross. It is finished. I thought the spirit came inside of me and he does it all. I thought that's how it worked. And that I just, I just, just tell me more about the good news of the gospel. That's really what I need. I just, just tell me more. I don't tell me to fight. Don't tell me to work. Brothers and sisters, here we are actually, we are stumbling upon one of the great dynamics of the Christian life that must be understood. This is the third thing I want you to see, that life in the spirit is synergistic. These are big words, or symbiotic. I couldn't figure out which word to use. Synergistic means that there is an interdependent relationship. That is two powers moving and working together to create and enjoy something greater. Notice the pattern that is set forth in these verses for us. It is the biblical pattern of change. It is the dynamic of change in our life. On the one hand, you and I are passive. What does it say? Verse 18, we are led by the Spirit. Now, when it talks about the Spirit leading us, it is not like the Spirit is up ahead of us and we have to, like, we have to like run after him. It's more like the engine of a locomotive and we're one of the caboose on the back. And where the locomotive goes, we will inevitably go. We are led. It is passive. If you're the caboose, you do nothing. You just don't put the brakes on. That's all you have to do. It is utterly passive. But on the other hand, what does it say? We do the walking. So which is it? It's both. Said another way, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, earlier on in Galatians 5, this is Galatians 2, it says this, for you have been crucified. We are crucified with Christ. This is something God has done in us. But Galatians 5, 24, it says that if you're in Christ, that you will crucify the flesh. This is something that we do. Now, here we get smack dab, and I'm going to give you a ton of metaphors to try to bring this home to you. A bunch of metaphors for you to try to cling to, to understand the dynamic of the Christian life. I want to give you a series of metaphors that explains this. Here's the first one. The Christian life is like sailing. Remember John 3? The Spirit of God is described as a wind. Wind. Many of you, the way you're doing your Christian life and the reason why you love the gospel of grace so much is because the way you used to do the Christian life is that you're on your sailboat and you're sitting here doing this. And you weren't going anywhere. And suddenly a wind by the power of the Holy Spirit came in your life and suddenly you were like, ooh, we're going some places. You're like, that's good. But guess what? If you really want to see great power and speed on a boat, what do you got to do? You can't create the wind, but what can you do? You can hoist the sails. You can't create the wind. The sails won't take you anywhere. The wind is what will have to take you there, but you have to put the sails up. Let me give you another illustration. It's like rafting. We cannot produce the current, but you can paddle, can't you? Some of you are stuck in the side of the river, over on the side. You're in the bushes somewhere, out of the way of the current. You've just kind of swimming right up, and you're just kind of, why am I not going anywhere? Why do I have no speed? Why is there no power? These rapids are boring. It's because you're not paddling into the current, the current of God's grace. One last one. It's actually the one the Bible uses the most. It's like gardening. Can you make the rain 
fall or the sun shine? Can you make the plants in your garden grow? Can you make them be fruitful? No. But you can plant your, your life in such a way that you can, you can be exposed to the sun of God's grace. You can seek to cultivate the life around you, the things around your life by ripping the weeds out so that you get more nutrients. This is what the Christian life is, and this is the dynamic, that once you're saved, he does all the saving, but then once you're saved, this is the, we, us and God together are doing this. He is still a power, but you are cultivating that power. You're putting yourself in the way of grace, where God's grace can't be avoided. You see, while we can't will ourselves to life in the Spirit, but we can, by our wills, open ourselves up to the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Are you getting this? The metaphor brings about that this, the Christian life is a dance. It is a two-step of the things that we focus on. Understand this, there are oughts to the Christian life. Oughts, fighting, walking, stuff to do, me no likey. Please, tell, just tell me about the current. This is supposed to be a gospel-centered church. Go back to the gospel. Oughts sound puritanical. They sound binding. They signed Roman Catholic. God forbid. We don't like that. And many times, they sound like spiritual practices. Things that you ought to do in order to put yourselves in the way of grace and understand this, spiritual practices and disciplines can indeed be empty, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Spiritual disciplines are God's appointed means to get you into the current. They're called the means of grace, word, prayer, sacrament. So why should you spend time in God's word? Because you are desperate for grace. Why should you pray? Because you're desperate to hear from the Lord. You're desperate to cry out to him because you need him in your life. This is how you put to death. This is how you walk in the spirit. This is how you keep in step with the spirit. The ought is not the current. But listen, if you want to enjoy the ride, there are oughts. If you want to experience grace more abundantly, there are oughts. So do you want this? Are you running after it? This is another illustration, another metaphor. Run after it. Run, Paul says, as to win the prize. The running after is not the current. The race is over is the current. The pressure's off is the current. You no longer need to furiously run by your own strength and your own power. That is the current and the truth of the gospel. But he still says, Paul says, run as if you long to win the prize when the prize has already been won for you by Christ Jesus. So there's the oughts. That's one step in the dance but it always has a direction. What's the whole point of the aughts? What's the whole point of working? To rest in grace. Never forget, all the aughts, the whole point of the aughts, the whole point of the spiritual disciplines and the spiritual practices is to get you into the current, to help you catch the wind of grace, to put you in a place where you can enjoy the sun of God's glory and grace more deeply. You do the art so that you may experience grace more deeply. And that grace is free. In verse 24, it says what? Crucify the flesh. But before it says that, what does it say? You 
belong to Christ Jesus. And that the power by which you do the oughts, and the whole reason then why you do the oughts, is to experience more of this truth, you belong to Jesus. I call it the push and the pull of the gospel. The push is the cross. It's what's behind you, what Jesus accomplished for you. So therefore, work hard. Why? Because in front of you are all the things that the gospel has won for you in Christ Jesus, the promises, the pull. You're being pushed from behind, and you're being pulled. Think of the image. Remember that great story of Winnie the Pooh when he gets stuck in the hole? And they have to send someone in from the outside, from the inside, someone is pushing, and from the outside, they're pulling. This is the gospel of grace. And you're simply there, poo, trying to suck in your belly all you can. <laughs> that illustration just came to me. <laughs> Let's hope that's the Holy Spirit. See, the oughts always embrace the promises of the gospel. What are the oughts? The oughts make you cling to this. Do this, work hard. Why? For he who began a good and work in you will carry it on to completion. It's the promise. He began a good work, the push, will carry it on to completion, the pull. The same spirit of Christ will make the qualities of Christ Jesus grow in you. So how do you live in the spirit? It always starts here. You belong to Jesus. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are treasured and you're possessed. As we saw last week in Romans 8, he is with you and you are his child. So fight hard to experience that. Let me see if I can continue to illustrate this. Bill Bright, this is how he began every day. He had a prayer that he said every single day, Lord, if you don't know Bill Bright, he was a giant of the faith in the 20th century. He began Campus Crusade for Christ. He said, Lord, I bow before you and I acknowledge you as my master to think with my mind, to love with my heart, to speak with my lips. This is what he prayed every morning. John Stott, who is one of the most profound theologians of the 20th century, said this. This is what he prayed every single morning. Heavenly Father, I pray this day that I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You would go through the whole fruits of the Spirit. Amen. You say, well, those are giants of the faith. Bill Pright, John Stott, and I would say exactly if they, every day, had to get up and cry out for God's help, how much more you? Or oh, we might reverse it. How do you think they became giants of the faith? I'm saying it takes a daily turning of your life to the one to whom you belong. And if it is not conscious, a conscious yielding to Christ's leading and the Spirit's leading, then you will unconsciously daily find yourself wandering around in beast mode. Without peace, without kindness, without love, filled with envy and rivalry. It is our default mode, and therefore we must wake up every single day and say, Spirit of the living God, give me a new mode today. You want to know how to do this? I know we belabored this. We'll close with this. Two brief illustrations. This is an exercise that I would call you to do. What does this look like in the moments? What, let's say 
the spirit, the, the spirit of God says, do not be anxious about anything, and you, you find yourself up like I am often. I have no problem going to sleep. I'm too daggum tired to not be able to go to sleep at night. But you know what happens to me? It happened to me last night. I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I wander around the house like a crazy person because I'm so full of anxiety and worry. And so what do you do at 2 a.m. when you're worried about what's going to happen to your child? about their spiritual state. Well, it worked just to say, self, don't worry. Maybe, but not likely. No, you gotta take your worry to Jesus in prayer. You have to remember this. What's the old hymn say? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. Because you haven't read the word of God, you've got to go to the word of God, and you've got to go to a place such as Psalm 29, where it says this, where it says, the Lord sits enthroned over the storm. And you remember, your promise is not that I won't go through the storm, but that you're in charge of the storm, Lord. And this storm of walking my, watching my kid walk away, or this financial issue in my life, or this relationship that has gone bad, or this project of work that I, I don't know what to do with, this is the storm. It's a storm cloud that I'm feeling at 2 a.m., but you're in charge of it. And so you pray a prayer like this. Using all that you know about the gospel, you pray the, the gospel to yourself and you pray it back to the Lord and you say something like this, Lord, I, I know you don't want me to worry and you tell me not to be anxious of anything and Jesus, you, are, you, you say you're the prince of peace and you say you're here with me at 2 a.m. Then you ask Jesus, Jesus, will you show me why I'm worrying? Jesus, show me the why of my worry. What are the things that I desire more than you? Oh, Jesus, is it because I don't trust you enough? I don't trust your wisdom or your power or your control in my life. So Jesus, come and convince my worrying heart that you indeed have my good in mind. Convince my wayward heart that I am yours and that you are with me. Convince my wayward heart that you love me and that you are in control of the storm. So it looks like to fight. You're like, that's a lot for 2 a.m. Yeah. That's why they call it a battle. Go read the old mystics and go read the saints of old. This is what it sounds like. Doing battle, they look like crazy people. Why? Because have you ever see, seen, there's, we're going on a cruise at some point later on in, in the future, and, and my, my family is really excited about this. And, and you know, one of the things that we're most excited about is the silent disco. You ever seen a silent disco? It's where everybody in the dance floor puts on headphones and you all listen to different music and you dance to different music. Now, if you're outside the dance floor and you're watching this, what does it look like? Crazy people! <laughs> it looks like crazy people. You know what a, somebody who's doing battle at 2 a.m. looks like? They look like they're sword fighting with air. But they're not crazy. They're in a spiritual battle. One last thing, it also fight, provides you the, the things that you need that when you have failed. What happens when you've realized you've been living by the flesh? When it has kicked your tail. And you're there and the spirit or the Satan is mocking you and you're sitting there bleeding and you're going, I failed again. And remember, this is a military term. Don't break rank. Keep in step with the spirit even, even when you've fallen. 
There's a man named Lieutenant Cleve McClary. Heard a story about him this week. Lieutenant Cleve McClary is missing his left eye and his left arm. He's a highly decorated soldier from the Vietnam War because in 1967, he was in a hotly contested battle in the midst of Vietnam. And a bomb went off near him and blew, off, blew out his left eye and blew off his left arm and blew him to the ground. And when he hit the ground, he reached for his rifles on his left side of his body with what he thought was his arm, but then he realized there was no arm there to grab the rifle with. So instead, he lurches his body over, grabs his rifle with his right arm, and stands and keeps firing. What's, what's going on there? He's keeping in step with the Spirit. What does a good soldier do? What have they been taught to do? Do not give up. Do not break rank. You see, after feeling terrible and being hit to the ground, what does he do? He keeps fighting. And so how do you remember to keep fighting when you've been knocked down? When you realize, oh my, I've been living by the flesh, not by the spirits. You remember that Jesus died for those sins. You remember that Jesus promises to bring you home. You remember that Jesus promises to complete his work in you. And so there you are, wounded by sin, bleeding and limping, crying out, I can't believe I did this again. But you rise and you say, this isn't the war. This is a battle. But Jesus has won the war. And my left arm like a bizarre Marty Python skit, might be not there anymore, and I might have to merely say, it's merely a flesh wound. <laughs> but I have the spirit of God inside of me, and so what? Like a lunatic, I will keep fighting. Because I have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't break rank. You continue to confess. You rise again, and you say, for God's glory and by his might, I will keep fighting. It's life in the spirit. So let's pray. Lord, by your spirit, would you bring the dynamics of what we do and what you do to bear upon our lives? Lord, you know I've wrestled with this for years. I am inadequate to give its full, to give full clarity to this fight. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace of understanding as to how you sanctify us and how you change us and how you fill us and how you help us to fly and not waddle. Oh, Spirit of the living God, we, I, I pray that in this room that we would be convinced of our desperate state. But Lord, your Spirit would remind us that we're in a war. And that we would see that we're fighting with stubs. That we've been wounded and limping, that we don't have much skill, but... And whatever skill we have, that we would simply just cry out to you and say, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, help me to fight in this moment. To fight sin. To cling to you. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would do that for us in this moment. You would do it for us at the 2 a.m. moments. That you would do it for us in the moments where we go to bed at night and we're crushed by the, the, the lies of the evil one who would come and say, You have failed, you have failed, you have failed. And in that moment, in our dependence and running to you, that your spirit would rush in, give us grace, and give us freedom. We pray all these things in the precious name of your son, who won that freedom for us. Amen.